I wish to just by way of review to remind our church family as we've been going through it and to bring along the visitors also as we will begin together this morning going through chapter 8 is what we have done thus far in the revelation of John as we have completed now the first of three cycles of seven. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And together we have completed the first of the three cycles of seven, and those are cycles regarding God's judgment being presently poured out upon the earth, likewise to be poured out upon the earth in the future. If you look with me in chapter 1, just briefly as I read uh, the way that John has recorded his book under the commandment of Christ in chapter 1, verse 19, this is exactly what we see in the book. The way that the book functions is exactly what Jesus says to John here in verse 9 of, or 19, rather, in the first chapter. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, all of these visions, write them down. Those that are... Those that are to take place after this. So the book is telling us, indeed, not of all things future, to an unknown people at an unknown time that we can't sympathize or identify with. Write what you've seen. The seer, the prophet, standing in heaven in his heavenly visions. Write them down. The things that are and the things that are to come. Jesus spoke of the things that John has recorded, those things that are and we have seen through the sealed judgments. Jesus expressed the things that are this way in Matthew 24 to his own generation. Jesus, in speaking there in what is known as the Olivet Discourse, explaining to these individuals, to this generation, he says, you You, these people, right here, Matthew 24, you all will see these things take place. You, standing here, this generation will see these things taking place. Jesus, you don't have to turn to Matthew 24, I'll quickly summarize what he is saying to this generation, this First century generation, which they will see these things. One, wars. You will see wars. Well, John likewise wrote of wars. And the things that are right now upon the earth, wars, seal one. Jesus spoke of international strife. Seal number two. Jesus spoke to this generation. Famines. Seal three. Pestilence. Seal four. Persecution and martyrdom. Seal five. Jesus said to his own generation, you will see these things. Then to John, to the church, write these things that are 
Jesus then summarized these seals that John made known as seal judgments, but Jesus speaking of these catastrophes and disasters in the earth that this generation will experience. He says this, verse 6, don't turn there, I simply read for you. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place. But the end is not yet. Do you see what is being done here? In the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, Jesus speaking to this generation that these things will take place. Then John, with a commandment in chapter 1 of Revelation to write down to the church the things that are. So then in the seal judgments we see exactly that. The things that are. And it's parallel to what Jesus indeed said is taking place. Given the obvious similarities then from Matthew 24, and I trust this is not too much for some of you who are just stepping in. You feel like you just walked into the middle of an argument that you had nothing to do with starting. Like, I don't know, who, who is he talking to? Who is this? Well, how is this developing? I trust that you can come alongside of us as it is a bit of heavy lifting to step in perhaps to an isolated message in the apocalypse, granted. But I trust that the Lord's word is written in such a manner this morning that he knew you would be here with us and is uniting us together in this next hour or three to the word of God for each of his people gathered in this place this morning. But given the obvious similarities of Matthew 24 and what John has written in Revelation 6, I would see that these two passages are speaking of the same realities. So then, if Revelation 6, the seal judgments, Christ is opening seal 1, seal 2, seal 3, seal 4, seal 5, and releasing the riders upon the earth that ride in mayhem and destruction. If what John is seeing is what Jesus is speaking of, then how are we to summarize Revelation 6 and Matthew 24 as being similar to the same events, talking of the same time period, the life of the church? How would we summarize then? Seal judgments that we have already come to study of chapter 6. I would summarize the seal judgments of Revelation chapter 6 this way. The operation, they are rather, the operation of destructive forces that were unleashed, were unleashed immediately on the world as a result of Christ's victorious suffering on the cross, victorious resurrection from the grave, and his victorious ascent to the Father's right hand in a position of rule. When Christ was raised from the dead in the Father's judgment, at that moment of ascension you have recorded in Revelation chapter 5, all that the Father is in chapter 4 is transferred to the Son in chapter 5, where he takes the scroll from the Father and he is highly exalted. And all that are worshiping the Father in chapter 4 turn and exalt the Son. And immediately upon that exaltation picture, we have the releasing of judgment upon a society that cast the Christ completely off. Indeed, a society 
a world, humanity, that rejected him as their own. Thus, a preliminary judgment was released upon the earth at the point of the resurrection. This is how we understand chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. It is consistent to what Jesus taught in Matthew 24. What is the implication of this? And again, I hope this argument to not be outside of some of you. Some of you it may. For others, they might sink this information in their mind. But if it means this, then it doesn't mean something else. If it means that the judgments were released upon the earth at the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, then it must mean that the judgments aren't reserved for some other time period. If they were indeed released at the resurrection of Christ. That is, to summarize once again, this would then mean that the events explained in Revelation 6, that of the writers who are writing upon the earth and bringing about what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 24, these events, these writers are not speaking to a future tribulational period reserved only for ethnic Jews after the rapture of the church. What I mean by that is somewhat understand that the writers are released, that this is happening in a tribulational context, and a tribulational context isn't actually going to begin in the earth until the church is extracted out by way of rapture. Then when the church, that is right now this church age is completed, the church is drawn to Christ to meet him in the clouds. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4. And the church gathered from the four winds of the earth. The elect are then gathered and brought up. And then at that time, a great tribulational period then begins in the earth. I am suggesting to you that the weight of scriptural evidence stands against that. The tribulational period does not begin when the church is raptured. It begins with the resurrection, indeed, even the first advent of Jesus. That is to say, a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial position, in my understanding, does not stand up against the weight of Holy Scripture. So I've summarized for you where we have been and uh, for seals 1 through 5 that they portray what believers are presently suffering in this present age. An age characterized with unbelief. Do you experience that? An age that is characterized as opposing Jesus indeed of the first century opposed him to the cross opposed the testimony of the apostles that then followed of his resurrection. John says, I speak to you of what I've seen with my eyes, heard with my ears, and touched with my hands. And largely society said, we have no room. Our inn is full. We have no room. A society, a world in which the church began to thrive is an age overrun with unbelief and opposition to Jesus, yet seal 6 and seal 7 
So we have the writers that are writing in chapter um, 6. Seals 1 through 5. Then you have seal 6 and seal 7. 6 and 7. Describe the hour that is coming in the future to end the age of unbelief and opposition to Jesus Christ. This is the second portion of chapter 1, verse 19. Write the things that are and the things that are to take place after this. The writers are writing, yet the appearing of our Lord to end opposition and unbelief has not decisively occurred in the earth in the first century somewhere. It is describing the final outcome of redemptive history so that seals 1 through 5 are operative. Seal 6 and seal 7 are the consummation of the age. We will see this same parallel language occur with the trumpets. We will see it a parallel language occur likewise with the bowls. That the final outpouring of each cycle of seven is that final consummation of the age, the moment of God's wrath. This morning's text continues just that. The escalation of evil, as well as the escalation of judgment that will accompany it, as we move toward the consummation of this present age, awaiting the age to come. If you will follow along in your text, if you're there in Revelation chapter 8, I want to begin reading at verse 6, and I'll read all the way through verse 12 of chapter 9, and then we'll come back and just kind of take an overview look at the role of the trumpets of judgment. So if you have your text of Holy Scripture, please, I would encourage that to follow along in the text in verse 6. Now the seven angels who had these seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships, they were destroyed. Now again, as you're even reading this, it's so apocalyptic, and it can feel a bit removed. Perhaps it serves us to think of it in terms of what we've confessed here this morning and sang. As we're reading of judgment and we're reading of terror, we're hearing yet in its judgment, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So we're not kind of hearing this and wrapping our minds around it from a perspective of sinfulness. And then it doesn't make sense. We're kind of hearing it in submission to the work of the Lord in his righteous judgments. Verse 9, a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Verse 10, then a third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell a third of the rivers and springs of water 
The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. Many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of the light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining. Likewise, a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an angel crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who are the earth dwellers at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. The fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air darkened the smoke with the shaft. Then from the smoke came locust on the earth. They were given power like this power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth, any green plant or any green tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. I trust in in this moment you can read that text and identify yourself in this text. Either it confirms your condition before the Lord or it is presently in this moment of proclamation confronting your position before the Lord. Let this text be this word of confirmation or let it also bring about repentance as a confrontation. Verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. Their nose of the wings were like noise of many chariots, horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. Their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them an angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. What I'd like to do first is our handling of the trumpet judgments that the angels stand poised and prepared to blow is to recognize the function of the trumpet judgments. What is their purpose? We've seen the seals. What is the purpose now following these seals, this work that we're reading of, of the trumpets? What is their function? Well, their function is really understood best, I think, if we see verse 5. The angel took the censer and he filled it with fire in the altar. He threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. You sang of this imagery this morning uh, as we spoke of the Lord with clothed with um, 
splendor and the imagery of what we sang about that which drapes and colors the Lord is that of thunder and lightning. This language here of verse 5 really clarifies the purpose and function of the trumpets. God, in other words, in this text, God is roused. This is the language of the thunderous activity, the peals of thunder, the rumblings, the flashes of lightning, and the earthquake. This is what we would call And I want all of you to memorize this term, and then I'm going to ask at the end of the service that all of you remember it, right? This is what we would call theophany. God appearing. And that is what this text is indicating, that God is roused. And we look at this text last week, it was by way of hearing the prayers of his people. And then after, the angel took this and threw it upon the earth, and this is the response. Peals of thunder, rumblings, and earthquake. It is a theophany. God, in other words, is roused. We'll find four more such theophanies throughout the apocalyptic judgments that are being poured out, and each one of them escalate. Each one of them grow. The imagery is more severe in each one of God's appearing, matching the severity of the judgment, the increase, the escalation of activity. So, too, the imagery of the theophany is more graphic each and every time. So what does this indicate in verse 6? After this appearing of the Lord, after this God being roused, now the angels had the seven trumpets, they prepared to blow them. That is, they see God roused and prepare to announce divine judgment has arrived. The trumpets continue the disasters and distresses of human history as a bitter foretaste of the final unrestrained wrath of God. This is their function. You have the seal judgments that are beginning this preliminary series of judgment across redemptive history. And then you have the trumpets that begin to blow and they take this imagery and they increase it. And we're going to see a steady increase of judgment as it moves across history, reaching itself all the way to the consummation of judgment where God will indeed appear and visit the earth with great wrath, destroying his foes and delivering his people. And the trumpets are taking the seals and they're escalating it. The trumpets are just a bitter foretaste of the unrestrained wrath of God that we will see in the bull judgments. It is such to say that the the, uh, trumpets are worse than the seals, but they are not as bad as the bulls. This is their function, an announcement of divine judgment arriving upon the earth. Notice also, though, not just their function, but notice with me their limitation of the judgments. That is, they escalate. So you have the seals that are current in the earth. And you don't have the trumpets come alongside and remain parallel with no escalation of judgment at all. What you have is, in human history, by way of the resurrection, this era of judgment. And then these preliminary seal judgments are moving across human history... And then you have the announcement or the rousing of God in 8.5 that tells us now things are escalating. Remember, the Lord Jesus is opening the seals in chapter 6. Now you have God roused. 
in direct divine involvement of judgment. That's a clear escalation of what we saw in the seals. A direct divine involvement in casting judgment upon the earth. So they announce, God is now roused. This is their function. And then they escalate. And the imagery is worth worse. So that you see with the seals that are affecting a fourth of the earth. This word of divine limitation. This word of grace and forbearance. This preliminary nature of what they're doing upon the earth. They're affecting a fourth of the earth. And yet, as we have read through, you see the escalation. God is now roused. He is divinely active in the judgment. And now things are affecting a third of the earth. We're watching a divine escalation of judgment activity. But yet, they are escalating but limited. And I want you to see the limitation of these judgments. If you're looking at your text, as indeed they are an escalation, yet they are still a word of limitation in human history, unlike the bulls. If you follow with me in your text, I just want you to see, again, it's kind of the way we've read through it in chapter 8, so you can see clearly it's an escalation, yet there is a word of limitation to God's judgment in the trumpets in verse 7. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up. So you have escalation, yet limitation. Continue in the end of verse 8. And a third of the sea became blood. Verse 9. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. And you have this great star falling and there's a third of the rivers. And then in verse 11, a third of the waters. And then look at the language of describing the people who are experiencing this judgment. It became wormwood and many people died. This is clearly distinct from when God's wrath is finally satisfied. All unrepentant die. So we have many, indeed, the escalation of judgment, yet there is still forbearance and limitation to God's judgment upon the earth in the trumpets. Verse 12, and the fourth one blew, and it was a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of the light might be darkened, and a third of the day, and a third of the night. In chapter 9, this word of, uh, of judgment, yet limitation and grace is also captured. Verse 4, they were not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant, or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Clearly we see that there is yet others living upon the earth in this time of divine judgment. They, we have already discovered, bear the seal of God on their foreheads. This is the church of Christ, Revelation 7. Here you see this earth-dwelling community alongside the people of God. The people of God are those who have the seal of God written on their foreheads. 
And now this divine wrath and indignation is being poured out severely yet with patience. But it is not the church who is the subject of judgment. For we have passed from judgment unto life. But direct, active God's involvement in judging the earth is restricted in these trumpets to only those who do not have the seal of God. On their foreheads. You would liken this to the paradigm of what this is being built upon. Think with me in your in, in your your remembrance of Holy Scripture. You're thinking, okay, where is this language coming from? Where are these events kind of being built upon? What platform? Where have we seen some of this in the Bible as we're reading across Holy Scripture, seeing its organic unity? Where is John seeing all of this? How is it coming together? We are drawn indeed who, as the New Testament so often speaks of the church in light of Israel in the Exodus events, the great hail, the great locust, building upon that of Israel in their Exodus, so too the people who are sealed with the blood upon their doorpost. So too here those who are to be harmed among the people of God living are only those who don't have the seal. As we have seen before, God pouring forth judgment on a people who are right next to the people of God. Yet there is a distinguishing mark, not their geography, but their identity. They are sealed by the Lamb's blood of life. Only those who are not will experience his divine retribution laid to their account. I hope this encourages twofold. It strengthens us in a vision for evangelism, a burden and a word of compassion that those would hear and so be saved. If this is real, if this is actual, if these events will occur, I hope it strengthens you in your identity today that you are sealed with the Lamb's blood of life, that you are those in chapter 7 who appear with white robes dipped in blood so you bear his mark and are sealed. Yet also does it motivate, give way to operations that then would, by faith believing in these events, strengthen you in the work of evangelism? Is there at all in this horrific disaster scene a burden and a movement of compassion? That even think about it off the top of my head, which is always a dangerous place to go in public speaking. As I say that, I'm reeling myself back in. Yet here I go. Just by way of concrete example, our East End giveaway coming up. Here we are, operative in the community, desiring to connect with people and be a blessing. And certainly there's layers of blessing. I want to encourage, clothe, and help, and equip. Yet certainly, by way of that blessing, we too wish to see them come to know Christ, come back and hear the gospel proclaimed, expressed through fellowship, 
and worship with God's people so we would invite, but we'd give forth a word of proclamation for how will they be saved if they don't hear. So then we're motivated to speak. Will this text at all inform our eagerness? Or is it the idea of we're trying to study it and think of all of these apocalyptic events and trying to wrestle with this idea of imagery and we just fall short because it's too much to take in and therefore it doesn't inform and motivate. It doesn't give way to practice. But would it, if this is actually going to occur in time, space, and history, and everyone who would approach a table... Maybe one who has not got the seal of God on their forehead. And you know, divine indignation is going to bear down upon perhaps even this generation with this individual to an escalated level that they will feel and experience divine wrath being poured out for they do not have the seal of God upon their forehead. I just, I'm asking you to join with me in the apocalypse that gives way to practice. And not get too wrapped up in the, in the imagery and feel the weight of such imagery and understanding that then we walk away exhausted, not knowing the mystery. But that it would break through with insight, give way then to motivation. Does it inform? I summarize then the limitation as we look upon the limitation of the trumpet judgments. I summarize this way as we've walked through the text to see it's simply escalated to a third, yet it is still limited uh, limited that many will die but not all. That is, in each of the six trumpets, each of the six, God sets a boundary, a boundary of grace and patience. He dictates in this text to all who are involved, that is, all of the seven angels, here they stand, prepared to blow the trumpets, implement the judgments. Yet God rises. He dictates to each one involved, both his angelic servants as well as the demonic host arising from the pit. He dictates to all. That destruction go only so far and absolutely no farther. This is a word of escalating intensity to disaster and calamity and death and in famine and in war. Yet God stands absolute and resolved to give a boundary even to his own judgments, which is a work of divine forbearance and patience upon the soul. You could see it as God has acted this way since the very beginning of human history, at the beginning, indeed, of the creation of the world. In Genesis 1, you see the creation of the cosmos, and it is God who in absolute authority sets a boundary upon the sea and upon the land absolute authority over you may go this far and you may go this far and you may not encroach here and you must be settled there. 
to the stars, to the moon, to the sun, to the sea, to the land. It is God who reigns, so too in judgment. This is certainly, as we look upon the trumpets, unlike the bull judgments, which are that time of unrestricted wrath. As John says in Revelation 15:1, these, speaking of the bulls, are the last, because in them, in these events, the wrath of God is finished. It is a time of unrestrained wrath that will be poured out upon humanity that has rejected Christ, begun suffering the birth pangs of this day at the point of his resurrection, and still this day stand in opposition to his rule. Thus they will experience a just desert. Might we be strengthened in bearing Christ's seal, yet motivated to share the gospel. And it is the source, then, of the trumpet judgments that we must follow, then, as we would see God's absolute authority behind the trumpets that blow. Look with me. I want to draw your attention to a few very key expressions of John laboring to show us that God stands behind all judgment. He is sovereign over all who implement in the earth. Verse 2 of chapter 8 is where it really kind of begins to paint the picture. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Right? The trumpets function to announce his divine wrath is appearing, and then they announce and the judgments are released. Where did these trumpets even come from? Who is authorizing and standing behind such raw judgment to be implemented in the earth? Who is it? Is it simply humanity escalating out of control? There is no God bearing this up. There is no God standing over it. Even the announcement of judgment, likewise the implementation, was given to the angels that they might even so act. So the source of the trumpet judgments is found in God in verse 2. Look at even, consider not just the angels who were given something, but consider the demonic hosts. So the servants of the Lord and the demonic hosts in chapter 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew the trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and the shaft rose and smoke like, uh, uh, rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and sun and the air were darkened and the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they too were given, vested with power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. Then look at verse 4. They too, they were commanded what they could and could not do. They were given twice and were commanded once. For indeed, the source of judgment is God who has been roused against the earth. 
Then if you look at the overall text, the source of judgment, how it is flowing, look at the text. The earth is receiving judgments. And where are these judgments coming from? But once again, from the throne of God. It really begins in chapter 8, verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and he filled it with fire in the altar and he threw it on the earth. So you see, the direction of judgment, it's sourced in God as he equips the angels and he commands the demons. And then it's flowing from him. Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquake. He stands in opposition to the earth dwellers. For they have rejected the Messiah and they continue to do so through the proclamation of the gospel. Thus they will receive just deserts. Look at the role of the earth being that of the object, receiving the action flowing from God. Verse 7, hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. A great mountain located here, the imagery, that of earth was thrown into the sea. A great star, look at its role. It fell from heaven, away from, flowing from heaven's judgment. Then you look at the earth receiving the action of the judgment of the Lord sourced in an absolutely sovereign God whose judgments are just. The earth, verse 12, the sun itself was struck. The moon, all that God created, the stars, and a third of their light might be darkened. Woe, woe, woe to the earth dwellers at the blast of the other trumpets. So we see very clearly once again that the destruction that decimates the physical world through warfare, human evil, or natural disaster is ultimately the outworking of God's sovereign purposes. I want to isolate for you two purposes then. What are his purposes in these texts? What would be his purpose for human evil, warfare, natural disaster, ultimately the outworking of his sovereign purpose as we see flowing from his being roused, delivered by his servants, whether it be a demonic host or an angelic being. It is twofold, one, for deliverance and defense of his people. You see that in verse 4 of chapter 9. During this time, he will be caring for those who have the seal. He will be defending the testimony of his martyrs from chapter 6. You are allowed to only hurt those not bearing my seal. The outworking of God's sovereign purposes in these events is deliverance and defense of his own. Secondly, it is a word of warning and preliminary wrath upon his enemies. It is a word of warning and preliminary wrath for his enemies. In summary, it is a word, even if destructive, it is a word of divine forbearance and patience. You saw this maybe uh, most climactically where the Lord is delivering and defending his own and yet he is also warning and giving a word of wrath to his enemies. Where have you seen this in redemptive history most climactically but that in the cross of Jesus Christ. A word of wrath and warning yet flowing from it divine patience and deliverance of his own. Acts chapter 2 
verse 22, speaks of this in this dynamic. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, you saw it. He did it. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is the work of God. Yet you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. You see the dynamic of the act of human evil, yet it is an act of deliverance and defense for his own all under the authority of God's definite outworking. But what is the call from the cross that went forward? Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Repent. This is the word of divine patience. This is the call and the warning sound. Even in the preliminary judgments, what shall we do? What shall I do if I am not sealed by the Lamb's blood of life? If I haven't trusted in Christ? If I haven't repented of my sin? Forego everything else and save only Jesus Christ? If I am not that individual, what would you say to me? In the event that divine wrath will be poured out upon those who are not sealed. I would say, as Peter said, repent. Repent, turn to Christ, and believe. This is the word of warning that goes out through the events of human evil, natural disaster, warfare, and so forth. A word of warning and preliminary wrath. Finally, let me move exactly there with the call of the trumpet judgments. How are they crying out? In chapter 9, if you're looking there in verse 20 and 21, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons, idols of gold, silver and bronze, stone and wood, which, by the way, cannot even see or hear walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or of their thefts. They did not repent. The call of the trumpets that are sounding forth in human history in the escalation of God being roused in the implements of trumpet judgments, moving us across human history in the Lord's timing, moving us to the bowls, that then will move us all the way to the climax of the consummation of the age where God will then return, vindicate his own, and decimate all who oppose him. This current call from the trumpet judgments, is to all this morning who are here in a state of unbelief. Please look at the text of Scripture. In unbelief, it cries out to you for repentance. 
In unbelief, it identifies you as a subject of this wrath. Sadly, we see a large portion of humans during this event and during this cycle of time, they do not repent. Once again, this unites us to Israel, and we see this in a parallel response to Pharaoh, who likewise didn't repent, though experiencing the judgments of God. Be not those who are unrepentant in the face of God's preliminary judgment, but receive it as a call for you to turn to the Lamb and be saved. To the church, then, the final portion of the call is for faithful perseverance. To you, believers, those who love Christ, are clothed in his robes, who have the seal of God bearing on your forehead. By grace, continue to faithfully persevere through trial and tribulation. By his grace, prove, as he wrote to the churches in the seven letters to the seven churches, overcome. Overcome. I've written a prayer for you as recorded from Isaiah 33. I thought it characterized this text precisely to the church. Isaiah the prophet in the 33rd chapter in the second verse writes this of Israel. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning. Our salvation in the time of trouble. Let this characterize the church of Christ. Wait upon the Lord Our salvation is in him during times of trouble. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice over your text of Holy Scripture. I pray that your people here gathered this day will receive your prophetic word regarding human history, regarding the events that you will pour out, and they indeed will be just. They will come alongside the judgments you are already pouring out for the rejection of Christ. Lord, unite us as your people to Christ. Let us be moved to love him more. Wait for him eagerly in the morning by his word. Be transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another as we await the final visitation from him. For we will see him. John told us every eye will see him. So, Lord, as we await that great day of deliverance, let us be faithful to persevere today. For, O Lord, we wait for you. Christ Jesus' name I then pray for one who is here, who indeed has heard the message of wrath and is standing defiantly thinking, I might get square on another day. Or I might deal with some of this that's aching in my mind, perhaps in the future when I do something different with my life. Lord, let them hear the call of Revelation 1. It will happen in such a manner that there will not be time for another day. And the one who waited will be the one who will wail and mourn 
at his appearing. Lord, there will be a realization in that moment that their calculation was wrong, that Jesus isn't second, he's first. So, Lord, I pray for them, that they would see Christ high and lifted up as preeminent, not a second afterthought. Let your word be that instrument of judgment and repentance and salvation. Christ Jesus' name, we ask all of these things, tending to the power of your word. Christ, amen.